From Koningstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, and the orange curtain is descended across the Ojai Valley, this is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hi everyone, this is Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai's Magazines, quarterly and monthly. This episode, we check in with Jim Beckett, the author, filmmaker, and environmentalist. Jim has recently completed a documentary about Dr. Vandana Shiba, the world-recognized activist, farmer, and anti-globalist leader, called Seeds of Vandana Shiba, which he co-produced with his wife, Camilla. Jim, a graduate of Harvard Law and a former United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees, has written, directed, and produced dozens of documentaries and feature films over his long and distinguished career. Hey, Jim. Thanks for joining me. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. I've been meaning to have this conversation for a while, and I finally got you in here. And uh, it's... Uh, interesting to see this latest project of yours you've been in the documentary film business and we're going to go through your cv um, point by point so be prepared to explicate every piece of it but this latest project about dr shiva can you tell us about that and how that came together and where that's at and what's when can we i can but you're saying that you want to go through every point so i hope we have a whole day here Oh yeah. I, I mean, I'm an old guy now. I've lived a long time, and happily, I'm still here, living yeah, in wonderful Ojai. Isn't that something? I okay, just you asked me a question. Sorry, right, let's go to it. Dr. Shiva Project, how did you get introduced to her? How did that pop up on your radar? Uh, yes, um, I was involved uh, with an environmental project in which... Uh, environmental activists, religious leaders, and scientists were all put on board a large ship and traveled around a body of water. And these were under the... Was that Lake Casitas or uh, Kachuma? No, this was the Amazon, the Arctic, the, you know, it was uh, more than that. It was under the auspices of uh, the head of the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, Bartholomew. But actually, it was my former wife who was organizing all of this. She was, she was Greek. And so, uh, Vandana was someone who was invited on one of these voyages. So that's how I met her. And then, uh, and there were eight of these. I, I mentioned the Arctic, the Amazon, the Mississippi. Is it like lecture, lecture cruises, something like that? Uh, not, it was, the basic purpose was to bring religious leaders together with scientists. And because those are long, estranged communities, and the notion was, this is one area they could agree on. And that was the environment yeah. and the depredations of the environment. So religious leaders are supposed to change human behavior. Scientists are supposed to give the facts. So on the first trip, which was in the Adriatic, the Aegean, um, oh. you know, there was a lot of friction between these two groups, but they began to respect each other. And uh, by the time the eighth symposium uh, was held, they were very productive. So that so, was... So, yeah, there was a Stephen Jay Gold book, I think, back in the early 2000s called Consilience. And that was the premise, religion and science, how they inform each other. I don't know if you remember that book. Uh, I don't, pretty... and actually I'm surprised I don't. I think uh, Maria, my former wife, was much ahead of the time. This was one of the first times that the notion was to bring them. But that... Uh, has happened a lot now. So, um, yeah. anyway, what happened was Vandana was on the first one, and then we were contemplating in 2009 uh, to do one on the Ganges. And Maria and I went to Navdanya, that's uh, Vandana Shiva's farm, 
at the foot at the foothills of the Himalayas, and uh, we started to plan to do the the Ganges, but alas, that never happened. And Maria passed away a bit after that. Oh, sorry, um, sorry to hear that. Uh, but I I knew Vandana, and doggone it. I mean, her life story looked like a terrific story. So yeah, I'm I, surprised I, it hasn't been done before. Was well, it one of those projects? You're like, wait a minute. I would have assumed somebody had already chronicled this. And and you can give us a, a little bio on her because I think people will be fascinated. Right. Um, uh, she she was born in India. She was a very precocious and. She, uh, her father was a forest conservator, and the mother was a farmer, and uh, she would accompany her father on these trips in the Himalayas, and she got a very great education in, in nature. And her ambition was to be a physicist, and for a woman at that time, it was very hard, but she persisted. And at university, she got a degree in physics. She later went on, when she got fascinated by quantum physics, uh, to get a degree uh, in um, Canada. Yeah, she went so, to school in the University of Guelph, which I've, I know is oh, a very really? well done school, yeah. very, very prestigious right. science academy. Yeah. Right. And actually, during vacation, then, she would return to help the original tree huggers, which were the Chipko, uh, Chipko people. Uh, so anyway, she became interested in organic agriculture fairly early on, and she was invited to a symposium in Geneva, Switzerland, in which the seed company, like Monsanto, these others, uh, they wanted to introduce uh, GMOs, that is, genetically modified organisms. Yeah, like, um, the, what do they call that? Not red rice. Um, oh. The vitamin right. vitamin A and, uh, and rice, right, rice. Which, uh, which Golden rice. Golden rice, there yeah. you go, uh, which has not uh, turned out that well. So she then really devoted herself to uh, organic agriculture and fighting industrial agriculture, that is big ag, and also big food. And of course, this has all led to the crisis uh, we face today in terms of uh, agriculture and food, as we know that agriculture is depleting the soil, the water, erosion, the air, monoculture. Exactly. Yeah, right. it's really, uh, we've certainly reached a crisis point, as you may have seen the uh, UN Intergovernmental Panel recommendations that right. this is the hottest decade in the last 125,000 years. Wow. Also, there's more, yeah, there's never been more carbon in the atmosphere mm. since 12 or 15 million years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I remember 125,000 years ago. It was yeah, it really was a hot. Quiet, quiet time. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was when speedos were invented, I think. Right. <laughs> Here, you I, want to take that call? I had promised to. Uh, it says potential spam. What do you think of that? I don't know. It could be a message from God. He could be That's telling you true. to stop this interview now before you say too much. Gosh, that could be the case. Anyway, to answer the question, when I was there uh, uh, planning about the Ganges, I said, my gosh, this would make a great film, your, your life story. And I proposed it to her, and to my surprise, she said, sure. And I think other people, as you sort of mentioned, had uh, proposed that to her. But since I'd had this long association with her, uh, I, I think she trusted me, which was important. And she's someone, because of her controversial activities, um, 
you know, is constantly being uh, <laughs> criticized is one. Yeah, she's got a target on her back. Sure, abs, abs, there's abs, a. Uh, that's the big egg has uh, some effective PR apparatus. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they have they have enormous resources, and they're constantly co-opting the language. I mean, regeneration, which was going to be the new buzzword replacing sustainability, right away Monsanto Bear grabbed onto regeneration. So. There is a battle of framing issues, as we well know. Yeah, words are very important. Yeah, otherwise they wouldn't bother. <laughs> right, right. No, no, but there, there is a struggle out there, and I mean, there are two very defined yeah, sides. I, I have, um, I sort of see some elements of both sides. One, we have, we're gonna tip over eight billion people within the next year or something shocking eight billion of us how are we going to feed all these people most of the problems that i see with the environment there's just too damn many of us just too many people and how do we fix that everybody's got the right to flourish and exist if not flourish how do we what is the solution to that i know one one thing uh, not to get too far off track, but education solves like six or seven different problems at once. Family sizes go down as women get educated. There's a lot of ancillary benefits that don't seem necessarily, like why would that be so important? Because it increases the not just the quantity of the economy, but the quality of the economy. People get, you know, women as they enter the workforce, it gives, it spreads out the activity more and it also reduces the size of the family and the carbon footprints and everything else that go along with that and I don't know that's that's only one part of it though are there others I mean what when you look at this this project and I want to talk about when you hope to get this out to the public but what other sort of angles emerge from dealing with this issue well, I think 75% of the food the planet eats comes from small farmers. And that Vandana has been constantly defending the cause of small farmers. And we know in our country that the family farm is an extinct species. And it's yeah, now I grew up on a farm, on a dairy farm. Yeah, mm -hmm. we had like a 90 polled herbert. This is my grandpa's farm, but we still had an interest and it amounted to half a beef and one hog every year that was what when i was a kid that was what we got we'd have yeah. to, to get the whole family together to to break down that hog and get those hams in the smokehouse that was the <laughs> that was that was our connection to that but my, my cousins still farm and and it's really really tough you know the production on a dairy cow in in the 70s was about two thousand dollars twenty two hundred dollars a year of milk that was per cow you know what it is today in 2021? $2,000. That's, that's like a third of the value of what it was sure, back then. Sure, if you take those dollars versus yeah. today's dollars, right. So who, yeah. can, who can afford to farm at that, at that scale? Only the big outfits, mm -hmm. only the factory farms can make money when you scale up, when you have that sort of pressure from the top down on the farmers it's like and the average age of the american farmer is in their late 50s so you yeah. have this generation going out and you have a whole host of young people who want to farm organically but where do they get the land how can they afford the land the well land is cheap but you can go out to western new york and buy an acre for 250 bucks you're kidding really well, I, don't, so, yeah. I mean <laughs> You know, at a at a thousand acres or something, but but uh, it's two hundred and twenty inches of snow a year. You can go a month where it never gets above zero. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's that's one of the reasons why it's why it's tough. Everybody wants to go find some rolling farmland in Iowa or something. I know. Oh yeah, you know, that's the, that's the, tough. Uh, but Bill Gates is the largest landholder of farming land in the United States. He's, really? What's yes. that, what's he doing with that? Well, he has the whole notion of uh, scientific farming, and 
that is that uh, you know the farmer will as they are now they're sitting in an office and the machines are out doing everything and they're doing it on a computer it's not a livelihood basically where your hands are in the dirt so so and he wants to do that in Africa to bring American agriculture uh, style big ag to Africa so uh, you know, those who are for the small farmer organic agriculture, you asked, how are we going to, f 8 billion people, what are we going to do? I remember always saying, oh, God, how is the world going to end? Is it going to be nuclear war? Is it going to be climate change? And I, is it going to be plague? And my gosh, plague has happened. But that, uh, no, that's not going to cut back on the eight billion, I would guess. Yeah, it seems intractable. You know, I've heard, oh, we can support up to 15 billion people, but at what cost, what quality of life does that offer when there's just these teeming masses? And imagine just handling that amount of waste and refuse and I don't know. I don't know what's what's the answer. That's why I brought you in here. Give me some answers. We're hungry for answers. Well, you know, Vandana is someone who thinks that, yes, if it was done properly, the world could feed 10 billion people. You know, if we had proper-sized farms and it was intensive agriculture, um, that it would work. But we're losing as i mentioned we're losing soil uh we're you know the pollution that we're producing is uh, aridification the yeah. place getting drier yeah water <laughs> issues yeah this, we're this right in the midst of uh you yeah know, we're seeing the effects here no boy are we ever you know and will life in our precious ohi be sustainable in four or five years it's uh that's it's an, that's open, an question. open question. Right? Yeah. So, what is the sta the stage of this? Uh, the seeds of uh, Vandana Shiva, like uh, right. right well, we've uh, finished the film. And it's in the can. It's there used to be a can. Now it's in the hard drive. Yeah. Right. So, my goodness, the technology has changed so much. It's as a filmmaker, it's gone amazingly from zero to a hundred here. Um, I got uh, distracted. What was the... Oh, like when do you, uh, do you have a re release? Oh, yeah, date? release Are you, are you hitting the yes, fest festival release, circuit? Absolutely. It's, it's it, in the festival circuit, the first festival it was in, it won best this, best that. So that was all good. But we have been turned down by the biggest festivals. And for some, during the COVID period the number of submissions has just grown like the world population. I mean, a, a, a regular festival would get like 2,000 submissions and have room for 20 places. So the odds there are, are great. So anyway, we're in some festivals and we're pursuing that. At the same time, it means that we can't commercialize it or sell it, put it, put it up on iTunes or something. Um, so the plan is we're looking for a distributor or a sales agent. So that would be the next step to make it available. And you, you typically find your distributors at the festivals. Is that how the business works? Uh, yeah. Ideally. No, right, right. But also with the internet now, uh, you know, it's uh, your film would be up on the internet, and a distributor who's interested could uh, could look at it. Yeah. So, I mean, are you going to do any local screenings? Uh, you yes, have, haven't you? Yes, actually. Uh, Flourish Ohi. Have you heard about them? Sure. Um, uh, Diane Sievertson. Diane, it was wonderful. It's been very supportive of the film. I'm going to pop that up in the notes. Yeah, and uh, there will be a screening in October at Flourish, Ohio. There will also be of another film 
that I made, uh, Sons of Africa. Um, Which I've seen. You have, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, that was an interesting project because you and Jim Whitney mm -hmm. hiked Kilimanjaro. 17, 18,000 feet, I forget. What is 19,000? 19,000. Whatever that is. That's yes. like 6,000 meters or something. But the kudos mm. belong to Jim Whitney, who, as the camera person, would run ahead of us and then would get behind us to get all the shots. So he climbed that mountain three times. It's like the family dog. He yeah. always hikes three times as far as everyone else. Right. Uh, anyway. Well, Jim's, uh, I know Jim, he's fit. I think he's probably had no, no issues with it. Right, right. But uh, he, the, the he premise, had... go ahead, I'm sorry. The premise of that is two sons of dictators, Idi Amin and Jomo Kenyatta. No, uh, actually, um, the uh, Tanzanian president, um, Nirere. Yeah, Julius Nirere, who you can't really call a dictator. No, he was a yeah. democratic. He, he was a democrat, a, but he, you know, once in power, to, you've got some issues. You got to make some accommodations. So, so, uh, so th these were sons of Julius Nirere and um, what's his name? Idi Amin. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Well, Idi Amin's son is not Idi Amin. No, 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 no. Does he seem like a very affable fellow? Very affable guy, but there he is. He's the one member of the family willing to defend his father. And his father's record, of course, is abysmal. Yeah. So the idea was that these two sons would go on a peace climb to climb Kilimanjaro, and that would be a bit to bury the memories of this uh, war when the Nyerere forces uh, took control of Uganda. Yeah, back in the whatever, early 80s or late 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, I'm curious about your background because I've scrolled through your Wikipedia entry and wow, it's quite impressive. It's like all my old jobs. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think we have exactly the opposite backgrounds because I barely got through high school. You went to Williams College, and sure. then you went to Harvard Law, which right. uh, is very, very impressive. Right. No, I. some of my contemporaries, we look back and say, boy, we had the golden years in the 50s. Well, yeah, it was great. Now, if you were white and uh, male... And, and and all of that, which, thank goodness, all this is sort of coming out with a relook at uh, a relook at history. But I was fortunate, you know. They talk about George Bush being born on third base. And he right? had a triple. Molly Ivins. <laughs> yeah. Molly Ivins said that. I love that. Right. So I was probably born on second base, and I don't think I stole to get there. I think someone hit a double for me. So I grew up in an era where America had become the leading power and the American empire uh, in competition with the Soviet Union. Uh, that's what I, I grew up in. So, you know, I could travel anywhere. We were very privileged. So that gave me the opportunity to see. And where did you grow up? Oh, oh and also, I, are I, you and uh, George Plimpton twins separated at birth, or how did that work out? Because you just look so much like George Plimpton. I'm really, sure you get that all the time. Not really, actually, because you're, you're a very savvy person. I actually was on a trip with George Plimpton in the on the Senegal River, so I got to know, got to know him a bit. Did you get the, the the people mix you up all the time on the trip? Um, or maybe if you get the two of you together, yeah. Or then, maybe then you've never actually been together at the same time, which creates its own set of questions. There you go. Yeah, yeah, a doppelganger. Well, that's. Uh, that sounds like a... Yeah, I, anyway, story. so I think I, I grew up in very privileged circumstances. And as we're witnessing today in Kabul, every empire goes into decline. So uh, I, had, I had the good years of it. And, and of course, uh, 
I had the advantage of being an American and being what we today would call progressive. Uh, you know, I've always been very left-wing, always very interested in politics. Um, so I could absolute free speech, and as a journalist and a writer and all of that, I could write what I wanted and make films, which I hope always had some political content, uh, free to do. So I have led a very privileged life. And you've made the most of it. You really put yourself out there. The, um, I mean, you've done some, some crossover. You've been involved with some with the United Nations and NGOs and back and forth between those worlds, which uh, I'd like you to talk to. Uh, I think I mentioned that a friend of mine had met uh, Oriana Falacci, an yes. Italian journalist. She's right. quite a character. Right. I mean, he was completely smitten with her. And uh, I don't know, like, I barely remember her, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, 60 Minutes interview or something. But uh, she's a very compelling character. She wrote this wonderful book about her relationship with this Greek freedom fighter when the military junta had taken over yeah, Greece yeah, in the yeah. 60s. Uh, and she, uh, he ended up getting killed. Like, he was a prisoner of war, got beat up, and then he escaped. No, no, and he was Ooh, in, no, no, yeah, no, I don't know. Okay. That was Alekos Panagoulis. And Panagoulis, there was a junta in Greece, right? Everybody, there was a military dictatorship that took over Greece. And... Uh, Go ahead, sorry. A military, the junta. Yeah, there was a military, uh, a military junta. And pa Panagoulis, actually, who was a soldier, he attempted to assassinate uh, uh, Papadopoulos, who was the head junta guy. And so he was arrested, terribly tortured, and in a trial made a great statement about we're against so he became a hero for those who were whatever and somehow uh oriana and he fell in love and uh they came to visit us. i lived in geneva with maria my wife and they came to visit us there so that's when i got to know uh ariana a bit now why because we had been very involved in the battle to restore democracy in Greece. Successful battle, as I recall. Um, More or less. Yeah, yeah, no, yes, I would think so. But uh, what happened actually was that uh, how the Greek junta finally fell was because they attempted to overthrow the legal government in Cyprus. And that oh, led yeah. to the that led to the Turkish invasion, etc. So the uh, the Greek military regime with Papadopoulos long gone uh, yeah, fell apart, and then all the politicians who had been in exile, like Papandreou, Mitsotakis, uh, they they all returned to Athens, and so. Okay, let's see. The junta it was a victim of their own overreach. Uh, yeah, why did they try to do that? Yeah. So Cyprus is still split up, right? Between oh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's still, there's the Turkish-occupied part and there's the Greek-occupied part, right? Yeah, it's interesting how they've managed to be so stable and, and relatively prosperous as well. With this, yes, uh, yeah. What do you, not a, it's not really an entrepot. I'm not sure what you would call those kind of states. Well, like they a, had a lot of banking regulations, which were very helpful. A lot of Russian money came in. Yeah, the also Russian money. Also, they have uh, a maritime fleet, so that's part of their earnings, I think. So. Yeah, there's a lot of Cypriot flags in the in the uh, in the merchant fleets. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but anyway, that those actually pretty tragic events uh, uh, was the demise. So democracy in Greece paid a price. The Cypriots paid a price. Yeah, I'm a little concerned about Greece because that Black Dawn movement of these fascism seems to have really taken root 
in response to the refugee crisis of 2014-2015. I'm not sure, or the Order of the oh, New Dawn. and A Golden Dawn. The Order of the Golden Dawn. Yeah, I understood some of them were in, are in prison now, and there was kind of a, uh, an eclipse of their power. And they did not do well in the latest election, which returned yeah. a more conservative government. And by so, conservative, he means standard. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Republican before it became the Trump Party. Yeah, like the uh, Eisenhower Republicans. Sort yes, of, uh, the Eisenhower Republicans. Oh, my God, that was my It's like uh, the woolly mammoth. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, I grew up in New York when Nelson Rockefeller was governor. Sure. People, people can imagine Imagine him, and now my family's all always Trumpers. But uh, it's interesting to see how that plays out. You know, Chautauqua County. I don't know if you're familiar with. Yeah, that's not upstate New York. That's like far western New York. Right, that's, right. It's like you got Indian reservation on one side, and you got the Amish on the other, and then you got these old German farm families in the middle, which is quite culturally distinct from, say, New York City. Very much so. I would, I would say so. Yeah, yes. closer to Chicago than New York City. Mm. It's much more Midwest. Mm. Gorgeous country, but it's kind of interesting to see how the poverty, xenophobia, atavism, all these currents are playing out. It's really, I don't know. What do you? What's your take on? democracy, stability in this country? Do you think we can survive another oh, January sixth? I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, everywhere you look, whether it's the world or whether it's uh, here in our own country, it's a mess. And, you know, we've got COVID to deal with and we've got climate change to deal with. And, uh, you know, I pity anybody who's president today and it's befallen, uh, befallen Biden. But, uh, you know, I... I think we are dangerously heading toward autocracy and with all this uh, voter suppression, et cetera, the Trump party could get back in office in 2022. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you have a country in which the majority of voters are voting, in this case, the Democrats and a minority, that they become a minority power and it's all about that. It's about it's about power. Uh, so, so it's really sad. And as individual citizens, you have to ask yourself, "What? My goodness, what can I do? Do I stop listening to the news and forget it?" Well, there's a streak of nihilism going on in this country that plays out in a couple of different interesting ways to me. One is, you know, this punch a hole in the screen trolling you know screw it all i'm gonna burn it all down and then there's the other streak of nihilism just like what's the point don't even bother to show up don't vote the problems are too big i can't wrap my mind around them i'm gonna slip into you know it's like a neil postman book um back in the early 80s very prescient book Amusing ourselves to death. Yes. Do you remember like that? that book? I remember. Yeah, yeah. But his premise was, you look at Orwell and you look at Aldous Huxley. Shout out to Aldous Huxley for all the Ojai fans because yeah. he would spend a lot of time here. But he, Neil Postman, thought we're amusing ourselves to death, but much, much more like Brave New World than this overt repression and boot heel of fascism like 1984 those were the two the two splits and i just was like wow that's you know i remember that book i don't know if i read it back then i read it some years later but thinking oh my god how did this guy know right and he could it's i think it's pretty obvious i think even back then we could see and the internet is like an accelerant poured that on the fire now we can just go into our little rabbit holes yeah and so. the internet, which is so amazing, I mean, as a writer and a filmmaker, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing now and, and... What are you writing? Well, I'm, 
I'm writing about my first experience uh, making a movie, and that was back in 1970. Uh, I, I knew Chile very well as a country because I'd had a Fulbright there, and also ski racing was my great passion. Oh, wow. And I had spent three summers in Chile, which, uh, you know... Is there winter? Winter, yeah. there, winter, yeah. And that was... So, uh, that was Pablo Neruda era, wasn't it? That definitely was Pablo Neruda era. And then uh, Salvador Allende. There you go. Now you wow. mentioned that to the current generation, they don't know. But anyway, there was uh, an election coming up and a group of uh, left-wing Americans and left-wing Chileans, we got together to make this movie, which was called uh, Chaos Air. So I, I'm starting to uh, write about that. Oh, experience. about being in that moment? In that moment, which was absolutely extraordinary. Chile was a more democratic country than the United States. The Communist Party was legal. They were part of a coalition that Allende had, a popular unity. And a million people would turn out to a rally. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary times. And the graffiti all over were, uh, it, was a, it was an amazing time. And then, of course, three years later, this all turned to a horrible tragedy. Pinochet. Pinochet. And all the people who worked on our film, they either went into exile, they fled to the embassies and got out, or the cameraman was tortured and thrown out of a heli helicopter. Despotacidos. Despotacidos. The disappeared. Despotacido. 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 Yes. Exactly. Despotacido. The disappeared. So, so anyway, and I, I've interviewed people who were still alive who were part of that film, and some of uh, the people don't want to be involved because the tragedy just casts too large a shadow over the film we did. And were we serious? I mean, what were these Americans coming down there? Is this, is this uh, poverty pornography that the filmmakers yeah. are taking advantage of this? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did the film certainly was prescient in that it absolutely predicted that uh, there would be a coup and uh, Allende could not survive. So, yeah. yeah, wasn't there a film at the end? Well, Pinochet, and you probably know way more than me, it was an interesting film that I saw not too long ago, 10 or 12 years, but it was about the early 80s, the No campaign. Yes, right, right. Do you remember that? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But interesting that he set himself up for that. He wasn't quite as clever as he thought. Right. He thought if he put out a referendum, people would just show their love because, oh my God, he had those uniforms and to bedecked and his rallies on a courtyard. He went full Perón. He thought he was just you know, this uh, picture of the modern, you know, major general and people were just going to flock to him. And then, But this brilliant marketing campaign led by some young yeah. activists right. that just, I mean, you could go back to that, their work on that no campaign, 1982, 83, 84, I don't know, and yeah. early 80s. And it's like, you could learn a lot. I think it should be taught at every marketing class, at every college in America, that right. campaign, yeah. It's interesting what you say about this often happens to the dictator, right? That they feel that people love us. I mean, this is perfect Trump. I mean, yeah. it's just... Uh, they live in these bubbles of yeah. adoration. Right, and then, of course, uh, the no vote. I mean, it was... what uh, couldn't have been right in the same way that they're, you know... The big lie. The big lie. But yeah. on one side, the big lie is not that it happened. And the big lie is that the, uh, you know, it's falsely put out that the election was uh, rigged. Yeah, there's a playbook that dictators use that you see a lot of those, those points be taken. Just delegitimize large elements of society. Right. And, yeah, I'm a little concerned about 
you know, this, uh, the way things are getting set up for 2022 because i'm a big fan of the french revolution or not necessarily what oh, happened okay. but just you <laughs> yeah. know the lessons to be learned from right. that with the sans culottes and uh you know i was just reading something about george danton you know famously right. as he was being in the tumbrils going off mm-hmm. to the guillotine and he passed robespierre's office and he said you're next <laughs> <laughs> and of course he was next. Yeah. You think you can grab a, a mob by the horns and steer them the way that you want them to go. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. Mobs have a mind of their own, and they can turn in seconds. And I just worry when people get whipped up like that. You well, know, another well, fascinating... Trump got booed when he proposed yeah, getting the shot. But, uh, but to so. be fair, that's like their joke. It's like... They love him. It's not like they're, oh, oh he's yeah. telling us to get yeah, vaccines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh. They know he's going through the motions. They're just letting him know yeah. that, yeah, we know you're just playing along to the woke mob, and we, you know, we love you. And <clears throat> so that part, I don't think he's in any danger of losing him. Oh, no. no. Yeah. And this whole uh, QAnon thing is part of that as well, this string of, uh, there's another great book, um, Kurt Anderson came mm. out with this like five or six years ago called Fantasyland, a 500-year history of paranoia in America or something. Mm -hmm. And he talks about all the various, you know, the Millerites and uh, Freemason conspiracies and the Illuminati and the John Birch Society, which we still have Birchers around today. Even in Ojai, we have John Birchers. Yeah. Wow. I'll tell you off record who it is, so you'll know. <laughs> I'll just stay away from them. But, uh, you know, this this paranoia can. It's like uh, I'm a big Eric Hoffer fan of that. Nobody's oh, ever heard of him. Oh, I just, absolutely. I just pulled out his book Ordeal of Change or A True Believer. A True Believer. And I was starting to read in it, and it's just so relevant. Oh no, God. he's a great, you know, great character. Well, yeah. he's my favorite. Uh, one of my favorites because he just sort of, you know, he was blind until he was like 15 or something. Oh, I didn't know that. And he had to, he's completely self-taught. Mm-hmm. And even after he was a public intellectual, like we used to have public intellectuals. We, we don't well, anymore. We've got Chomsky still. Yeah. I guess he doesn't do the sort of uh, talk show circuit. You know, he's not on fire crossfire or firing line with Bill Buckley or anything. Oh, uh, Chomsky. Well, yeah. I, I, they, I, they put him aside. I mean, he's not... He. Do you ever follow Chris Hedges? That name sure rings a bell. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, we're doomed, sort of, but he's, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist and he's extremely articulate and it's just, you know, he's saying basically we're I meant to ask you about language in this. Uh, about Chomsky, is that what? No, you know? just language. If I could say we're... Yeah, I think you can... You've got your point across. Oh, okay. It's okay. Good. I don't... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah the audience right, is well, so small, they already know what yeah, they're getting, so they're not going to like... Let's, let's keep it... Yeah. Um, but they're, they're it's like... You can drop an F-bomb every now and then. But, no, okay. But the lead-up you had going into it, I was afraid it was going to go nuclear. <laughs> we just want, like, the 500-pound fuck bombs. Oh, not okay. The, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, the... Um, you know, the semantics of the, you know, the way you're talking about Conagra and Cargill and Monsanto and how they're co-opting, you know, or, or like one of the things that I've been sort of concerned about, maybe that's the word, I see all this, you know, cultural divide going on and how Corporate America, especially, is very savvy. Like, you have your fabulous gay wedding. You be you. You express yourself. It's all going to be this Benetton, United Colors commercial. Everything's great. Meanwhile, oh, minimum wage? No, please, please, you don't understand. It's like, you know, you got to know your place, blue-collar America, the proletariat. We'll give you your 
fancy gay weddings, but you know, just let us worry about the economic levers and and how much people get paid and how they work and the terms and the conditions of the working class and the dimension. We'll take care of that for you. You you distract yourself with all this 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 wokeness and all the beautiful colors of diversity and everything else. We'll handle all the dirty work and all the grubbing and, you know, the manufacturing and the processing and the service industries. We'll take care of all the, you know, the actual, the actual levers of power over here. I, I just wonder, is that like, really, do you ever pick up on that, that we're being distracted maybe? or? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. No, and as you mentioned the Postman book, you know, we're being distracted to death here. Yeah, yeah. amused to death. But I just think that's something to take a look at because I sell, you know, all this diversity and all this, you know, inclusion and all that is absolutely a positive social good and it's bringing a lot of new perspectives and, you know, like the, I just see like the, feminine energy that's getting entered into, you know, the decision-making processes and consensus and, you know, worrying about how, you know, the forgotten people are, are being handled and all the rest of that. That's absolutely made this world a better place. I just worry that, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, right. the, the corporate America is, is consolidating even more power and Jeff Bezos yeah, is shooting himself say, up into space and everything yeah, else. Yeah, and they own the legislature, so I mean the lobbying is going crazy. Yeah. yeah. So it's like there it's a dual agenda. It's right. Very, very clever. Right. Now the Trump administration did everything they could to suppress immigration, right? No immigrants and Stephen Miller was key to all of that. Uh, and you know, if you suddenly woke up here, having been in the 50s, the pundits, the entrepreneurs, they all have names you can't pronounce. Where in the world did they come from? You know, it's not John Smith. Yeah, it's and Satra Nadella at Microsoft. That's a, These people come over on their H-1B visas. And this is as close to a meritocracy as we can get maybe in the world in the history of the world this is as close to a meritocracy because of these restrictions that were lifted on immigration back in the mid 60s i mean you go to any large hospital in america and start reading down the staff directory oh my gosh yeah yeah we're short of doctors named john smith uh, no but that has given us an incredible diversity which has really enriched the country and you know, if you're trying to get back to the 1950s and have it all white Christian, uh, ain't gonna happen. No, well, we're not gonna get that toothpaste back in the bottle. And I do see this, um, I remember, you know, growing up, big, big family. I had like 50 some first cousins. My dad was mm, one of, one of mm. nine and they all had a bunch of kids. and. We're all running around and... Well, you're responsible for the eight billion. What's going on here? Not me, my family. I only have two kids. Oh, okay. There you, you go. Know. That's right. But that's yeah. on the right track. We're, you yeah, know. yeah. But I see like a lot of, especially Latino immigrants in the way that they spend their weekends in large groups and picnics and parties and birthday cakes and balloons and barbecues and I'm thinking oh that's my family that's how mm. we did it like this is just how America rolls it's like try to find a child of an immigrant who was born in America who speaks with a foreign accent they sound as American as anyone else right. no it doesn't happen you know, the, no, well, I mean, to learn proper accent, uh, it has to happen before the age of 11, because then it goes to a different part of the brain. I know a number of languages, but I learned them all later, so I have a, an accent, an yeah. American accent in each one of them. So, uh, yes, and then often that first generation wants nothing to do with the parent's language, he wants to integrate. And then the yeah. next generation wants to, wait a minute, these are my roots. 
Mm-hmm. I want to find sorry they didn't make me speak Spanish or Chinese. Yeah, I see that happen a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's like uh, been going on since, you know, the, the Swedish immigrants in the Delaware Valley in the 1740s. Right. I mean, this is just the how America rolls. That's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I see that, uh, uh, you know, as a unalloyed good. It's just my concern is that the economic issues are being mm. overlooked or neglected and corporate consolidation of, you know, the information especially is being, being I don't even know how to describe it. It's, you know, we're getting fed into our silos and getting further and further right. apart from each other. That, right. Yeah, there was that great book, uh, Robert Putnam book, Bowling Alone. It came out in 2000. Mm. And he's talking about the decline of social capital in America. And then he came up with another book called Hunkering Down by the end of the decade, 2009, 2010. And he's, he teaches well, it. You're very well read, Brett. I'm impressed. Am I really? When, I never when really... do you find time to read? I find myself not reading much. I watch a lot of TV, too, especially uh, cartoons like Rick and Morty. Terrible stuff. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, Robert Putnam did not publish this book because he found it too depressing. His findings called Hunkering Down. And he's talking about how we're just walling off from each other. Gated neighborhoods, ethnic-only yeah. enclaves, right. you know, the ratcheting up of the rhetoric, all the rest of that stuff. It was just he couldn't find enough uh, hope in that book, and he just felt such despair. He didn't, didn't publish it. And he still works. He's come out with a couple of other books about his hometown, which is uh, near Youngstown, Ohio, and about how his two families, how their tracks diverge. But there was hope in that book because, you know, again, the ladder of education is like the ladder of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's rare for a writer to not publish. He's, you know, devoted to He's a sociologist and one of the most preeminent sociologists in the world. Yeah, it was, it was. but so um, back to your work. I know um, this project is very near and dear. This Andana Shiva. Is there anything else you're working on? Is there any other projects that you think would be well? I as I said, I was starting to write about my first film experience, which really was my film school. But also for the last year, I've been working with a Palestinian named Mossab Hassan. And uh, we just finished a, a book about part of his life story. His, the, uh, he did uh, his first book called Son of Hamas was a New York Times bestseller. And that also was told, told to somebody. But he, uh, his father was one of the founders of Hamas and a big political figure. He's the oldest son. And he ended up working for Shin Bet, the uh, Israeli intelligence agency. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, and against his Hamas brothers. Against it. Well, his motivation. Was he in the West Bank or in Gaza? In the West Bank. And his motivation, you know, we've got to stop the killing here. This is just, you know, stop the suicide bombers. So he's a hero in Israel and a traitor in. Uh, Palestine. So uh, that's been a, a very interesting uh, a story, and he's he's forty three years old, and my God, he's done so much in so much in his life. Now, he's, what uh, what is this? Are you shooting on this? Is it? No, no, no. This is a book, and we finished okay. a book, and it was uh, a New York publisher had it. He never got an uh, uh, agent, rather literary agent. He never got back to us, and uh, an Israeli uh, a publisher has it at the moment. So I, I don't know what's going to happen, but yeah. that's been uh, quite fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. What's your solution for the? Uh, are you a two-state, solu- two-state solution guy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just makes it, sense, doesn't it? How how else oh, would it make sense? Yeah, no, because the yeah, 
I mean, they are, you know, it's an apartheid state. There's just no question about it. Yeah, I mean, and, I have a generally favorable view towards the Israeli people, but not specific to Benjamin Netanyahu. Right. Well, the he, Likud. Yeah, he's out for the out for the moment. Yeah, it's but, interesting that it took so much and so much scandal for him and the corruption. Again, there's oh somebody that God. thought he was untouchable. Yeah, exactly. An yeah. Another another example. We need another Golda Meir. Remember Golda Meir? Oh, gosh, yes. Did yes. you ever meet? You never met. Did you if the Palestinians love their children as much as uh, we do, we wouldn't have this, etc. Yeah. Well, there was a funny story about her. I was in the military for six years. Oh, oh! And that was like uh, in the early '80s. That was oh. my that was my Harvard. Oh my! It was goodness. Uh, Air Force. Uh -huh. That was just you know four out of six of us went into service. That's just like what you did when you yeah, were right, right. But the um, Moshe Diane was still around. Yeah. And he had a when he was on this. I was an airman's aide to a general officer. Mm -hmm. And at some public event, he gave a speech. He's talking about Golda Meir. I think she was still alive. Maybe she wasn't. I wish I could remember things better. But he was talking about after the Six-Day War that they were on a victory tour. The Labor Party had won an absolute majority. You know, it was like 40-some parties mm -hmm. in Israel. They won over 50% of the vote. They formed all the government. They didn't have to make any coalition. And uh, he was given a speech about the Jewish Defense Force. I guess it was still the JDF then and not the IDF yet. Mm -hmm. But he said, uh, you know, all the, all the credit goes to them. I didn't have anything to do with it. I was just the right man at the right place. And, you know, I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by all these brave men and women. And women, you know, they're mm -hmm. combat oh, yeah. soldiers. Yeah, yeah. And then when he gets, he sits down after the speech and Golda Meir leans over to him and whispers don't be so humble you're not that great <laughs> <laughs> how could you not love a woman like oh, that oh that's a great comment actually. yeah yeah that got a big laugh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Huh. so uh tell us about the united nations how you got involved yes with that. um i was a student in geneva uh getting my doctorate and Geneva is you know the center of United Nations agencies and I went to work for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and yeah. uh, what, I, what time was this this was uh, 1974 to 1982 or so so it was the time of refugees from Africa, also the Chilean, Chilean refugees, yeah. but it was the time of the boat people and it was the, you know, the collapse of Indochina. Yeah. And, uh, so I spent a lot of time, oh, I was the director of what was called public information. So, you know, I was the spokesperson for the organization and uh, also we produced movies and all kinds of stuff. So Sounds like quite a portfolio. Yeah, no, it was great, and I, I mean, I traveled to Africa. I spent a lot of time in Thailand because of the refugees from yeah, Cambodia. Yeah, the boat people. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, who were being attacked by pirates. I know, I was just going to bring that up. The, yeah. uh, people think pirates are such a charming, anachronistic thing. They're still out there today. They're they're clogging up the, the shipping lanes yes. off the Horn of Africa. Right, right, right. Holding these well, ships ransom and everything yeah, else. Like, yeah. Pirates are, that's, that's part of our modern world. Yeah. No, it basically were Thai fishermen who saw a good opportunity, and they'd hit the first boat, take all the money, take everything. Yeah. Then the next boat, grab all the women, put them on an island, into prostitution, and then sink the bloody boat if they didn't have anything to offer, so... Yeah. Yeah. And your job was to repatriate the refugees uh, or just to make sure that they had had uh, yes. survival well, something, stock? Yeah. I mean, something like the Cambodians who came out as a result of Pol Pot. I mean, there were like 150,000 in one refugee camp. So wow. you had administering a refugee camp 
And then at the same time, particularly with the, the Vietnamese, uh, trying to find a country that would accept them. So, yeah, so the, the High Commissioner had those two functions, basically, was to meet an ongoing crisis and at the same time uh, try to place uh, refugees out of the camps. Uh, and, and unfortunately, today, the number of refugees, and now we've got <laughs> Afghanistan, so... And, and Europe, I mean, Merkel really stood up for the Syrians, but the backlash is been a lot and well, we're still feeling it definitely brexit trump a lot of this you know victor orban in hungary yeah. the, the in poland they've basically been taken over by yeah. Yeah. you know slow moving coup this is uh, all a result of these refugee crises which to get back to bandana shiva is very much related to environmental crisis this absolutely country. because syria got triggered by drought and the farmers came into the cities and they were demonstrating. They got very repressed by the Syrian regime. And then that led to this whole uh, disintegration. So, yes, and climate change is going to, and of course, people out of the Sahel in Africa are coming into Europe. So we have climate refugees, we have political refugees. Uh, and a, and a hybrid of both. I think Syria yes, is yes, definitely yes. a hybrid of both. Right, right. Yeah, this is really an interesting time that we live oh, in. Oh my goodness, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, <laughs> yes, it is an interesting All right, well, let's, we'll, we'll start wrapping up. I think we're okay. he heading just over an hour. But like, what is the, you know, to leave our listeners with some, call to action or some kind of hope what have you seen out there that that sparks joy uh wow i think just waking up in the morning in ojai and you have a blue sky out there and it's just you're so blessed uh to be alive so that that's a, a personal take uh and what can we do? Well, one thing is you can vote here in California uh, on, vote the no, people. on the upcoming recall. Yeah, so. vote no. The second part of it, you know, this is just, this is just, I was talking about the two different strains of nihilism. This is the burn it all down strain going on here and the, the jokers and the comedians and let's, you know, the idea that Newsom, for all his faults, could get 49% of the vote and then lose the governorship to somebody who's likely to get 10, 12, 13%. It's absurd. I just feel like how democracy gets hijacked through good intentions. Right. This, you know, Hiram Johnson progressive era reforms from 1910 was meant to thwart the will of Collis Huntington and Leland Stanford and these railroad barons that were packing the legislatures with all their people. And here it's become buffoonery. It's become like an opera buffa. It's <laughs> insane. Right, right. So I say vote no. The second part, you know, I don't know. You're allowed to write someone in. I think I'm, I'm, I haven't done all my research yet because I may vote in person, but I think you have till September 4th or 5th or something. Yeah. Something yeah. like that to get your ballot in. Right. I, I already did. Uh, the, the dilemma for Democrats is there is no Democrat in that list to, you know, who you'd like to see governor because if the vote is no, then it's the one with the most. Yeah, so the strategies of writing somebody in or, you know, putting somebody else's name in there, I really don't know enough about it to know whether that's good yeah, or bad. Yeah, I know that the lieutenant governor did not allow her name to be put on ballot as the lieutenant governor did in the Gray Davis recall back in 2003 huh. because they don't want to confuse matters because that didn't turn yeah. out very well. Yeah. 
So interesting. The LA Times gave the name of somebody they recommended just in case, and you might as well put a possible name in. Uh, because if it is, no. And it's strange you mentioned the Chilean case, and that was to get rid of a dictator. We're saying no in order to keep a governor. So, or to keep a democracy of yes, functional yes, form. Yes, yeah, the idea yeah. that somebody with 12% of the vote could govern the state. And look at Diane Feinstein is like 80-something. Yeah. If something happens to her, her, we can have this... Republican write-in candidate representing t 10, 12 percent of the elector of the turnout. Just the people who bothered to vote could be deciding who becomes our next governor, and that'll flip the control of the United States. Totally. Senate. I mean, that's it's just, the stakes are high. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and I hope people uh, you're talking about those who don't care and you know, and I hope. Uh, well, that second strain of nihilism doesn't uh, swamp the earnest people who are showing up and actually putting their, like yourself, putting your uh, shoulder to the wheel and trying to make the world a better place. Even if it doesn't work, at least you'll have the satisfaction of knowing. And we don't know. I mean, yeah. what we do today could have ripple consequential effects for decades or generations and we don't we don't know we have no idea how history is going to shake out no but in the meantime we can do what we can yeah enjoy the show all right all yeah. right thanks jim all right thank you very much just thinking out loud my conversation with jim went rather longer than we expected as time often slides by stealthily when you're having such a fascinating conversation with such a worldly and engaged person we did not get around to talking about film recommendations, which happened as we continued after concluding the recording. So I recommend it to Jim, and now to you, that you watch the film Pig, starring Nicolas Cage, directed by Markle, Michael Sarnowski, and a truly fascinating debut. While nominally about a truffle hunter's hunt for his stolen pig, it is much more an engrossing meditation on grief. Please check it out. It is as absorbing a film as I've seen in many months. Well, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.